Most of you probably know who I, who I am, but if you don't, uh, I'm Rob Frank. Some may not recognize me with my luxurious beard, but uh, uh, that's who I am. Um, I'd like to begin just by wishing Pastor Stewart a happy birthday. I realized this week that I am now older than Stuart was when me and Abby began attending church here. So that's, that's quite a revelation to, uh, to come to, and um, I wish him and Sheila just a, a great day together. Um, I invited a lawyer friend of mine to church this week, and I told her I would be you know, speaking, and she asked me what I was gonna talk about, and I told her you know, I really didn't know, but that what I really wanted to do, what I was really committed to was doing God's will. And she said, well, in that case, you better make sure you get it notarized. <laughs> I think she may have missed my point. You know, she was a lawyer, and from her perspective, doing someone's will means drafting an estate plan, not following God's purpose in our lives. My lawyer friend was not bad or wrong. She simply saw the conversation through the lens of her identity as a lawyer. The way that she saw the world, her worldview, was driven by her identity as a lawyer. And for me, the meaning God's will was driven by my identity as a disciple of Jesus Christ. So with this conversation in mind, I thought I might speak with you this morning on the topic of Christian worldview. That is, how we as Christians are called to see the world. And I'm going to address it in the context of five pillars that I believe to support and describe that worldview. So what is a worldview? A worldview, and this is a, 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 actually a definition from a, uh, a theology textbook, a worldview is the framework from which we view reality and make sense of life in the world. It's any ideology, philosophy, theology, movement, or religion that provides a framework in which we interpret the world around us and what happens in it and gives us an overarching approach to understanding why the world is and what our relationship is to the world and to its creator. But you know, a far simpler definition is our worldview is the lens which we use and through which we view things that give meaning to our experiences. For those who've heard me speak before, they've probably heard me talk about filters and meaning and how meaning gives rise to filters. And I'm just gonna summarize that briefly again this morning before I move on. Meaning gives rise to filters and filters are really what makes up our worldview. People are meaning-making machines. We make meaning all the time, we make meaning every time. Everything we see and hear is heard in the context of these meanings. Heard in the context of the judgments, assessments, and interpretations that we bring to the world. The meanings we assign to things become the filter through which we see the world around us and through which we understand our experiences. And over time, we begin to forget that we're seeing things through a filter. So here's a great illustration. Every day for the first five years we were married, every morning, Abby would bring me a fresh towel. And I thought, wow, my wife really loves me. This is such a kindness. And every morning when she'd bring me that towel, I saw that act through the filter 
of my love for my wife and the strength of our relationship. Years later, I found out that, you know, for Abby, sharing towels was just gross. <laughs> she was making sure I had a towel every morning so I didn't use hers. <laughs> so just like my lawyer friend who got, you know, God's will wrong, I, I, I missed the mark a little bit. There's a Chinese proverb that says, if you want to know what water is, don't ask a fish. Water is the sum and substance of the world in which the fish is immersed. A fish does not know its view of the world is filtered through this watery lens until suddenly it's on dry land and it you know, kind of appreciates water just a little bit more. You know, we're the same way. Immersed in the filters of the meaning we create, we often fail to appreciate the power that comes from the way we see the world. The power from how faith in that vision changes and creates our world. You know, take for example an apple. You know, just a little simple apple. We think that an apple can't have much meaning, but you know, an apple has a lot of meaning. You know, I imagine when uh, Jeff back in the booth got my uh, notes and he saw that I was going to have an apple probably thought it was a little device, you know? He sees things through the lens of, of, of a computer techie guy. You know, Dave, he's a former grocer. He probably sees this in the context of inventory, whether, wondering whether Kroger needs to order some bigger apples. Um, you know, Abby, a physician, she might see that apple and see her billings go down as her patients start eating an apple a day. I see Jason there. He's an engineer. He'll probably measure its width and its circumference and its displacement. Now, Pastor Stewart, he would see that apple. He'd make 30 pages of notes, preach for an hour, go over time, only get through 10 of them, and have to do a series. So, you know. <laughs> so we'd all see, we all see that, Afri that apple differently. You know, I, I imagine Adam standing here saying, that woman you sent. The point is, even for something as simple as an apple, we give it meaning. And these meanings create the lens through which we see it. We have a worldview, and this worldview alters how we interact with something as simple as an apple. An artist has a different relationship to an apple than does a grocer or a doctor. Marietta or Dennis may see this and see a still life or a multimedia work of art. We as Christians, applying not our meaning but God's meaning to things, to the world, must also have a different relationship based on our worldview than does the rest of the world. Now, everyone has a worldview. Some worldviews are an incoherent mishmash of you know, things taken from postmodernism and modernism, the natural, the supernatural, science, all different kinds of things. But when you're looking at a worldview in our popular culture, there are really just three. The predominant secular worldview teaches that beliefs are a matter of personal preference, not absolute truth. Truth in the secular world comes from reason and science. And that leads to the scientific worldview, which is a worldview which holds that there is nothing but natural elements, principles, and relations of the kind studied by the natural sciences. I think the most prevalent right now, or at least the one I see the most when I'm out in the world, is postmodernism. 
Postmodernism believes that there is no absolute truth. Personal truth is determined by our upbringing and our culture, or simply our opinion of whether something is or is not. It believes that truth is just used to suppress and oppress the less powerful. Now, each of these worldviews, in my opinion, are hollow and ultimately unsatisfying. They're destructive of the value of the individual and create false divisions that are destructive of us as a corporate body. But more importantly, they can't answer the basic questions of existence, purpose, and morality. If you ask somebody with a secular worldview, why is there something rather than nothing, they never have a good answer. They have no answer for love or for faith or for miracles. They can't explain the historiosity of Jesus' ministry or the overwhelming evidence of his resurrection. It's tempting to spend the morning you know, deconstructing these worldviews, but I think instead, like I said, I'm going to focus on the five pillars that I believe support a Christian worldview. And these are as follows. One, see the world through faith. Two, set your mind on the true, the noble, the just, the pure, and the virtuous. Three, see yourself and others the way that God does. Four, love yourself and others the way God does. And five, be presently and radically called into a world starving for relationship with God. Pillar number one, see the world through faith. Secular worldviews are inadequate to explain non-physical phenomenon. Such worldviews can't accept that which is spiritual because what is spiritual is beyond measure. Secular worldviews cannot account the unseen immeasurable forces that surround us. But a Christian worldview is not so limited. As Christians, we see the world called into existence by God's word. Everything we see has been created from what we don't see. We see by faith. Faith is the most fundamental aspect of the Christian worldview. The book of Hebrews uh, 11, uh, 1 and 2 tells us, and, and this is from the message version, the fundamental fact of existence is that this trust in God, this faith, is the firm foundation under everything that makes life worth living. It's our handle on what we can't see. The act of faith is what distinguished our ancestors, set them above the crowd. By faith, we see the world called into existence by God's word, what we see created by what we don't see. And you know, faith is probably the most powerful, and if not, it's one of the most powerful creative forces that there ever was. You know, Jesus tells us in Mark 11:22 to 24, have faith in God, for assuredly I'd say to you, whoever says to this mountain, be removed and cast into the sea, and does not doubt it in his heart, but believes that those things he says will be done, he will have whatever he says. Therefore, I say to you, whatever things you ask when you pray, believe that you receive them and you will have them. Faith is the power that underlines our worldview. Nearly the entire 11th chapter of Hebrews is devoted to detailing what one can accomplish when one's worldview is based on faith. By an act of faith, Abel brought a better sacrifice to God than Cain. It was what he believed, not what he brought. 
By an act of faith, Enoch skipped death. By faith, Noah built a ship in the middle of dry land. By faith, Sarah was able to become pregnant. By faith, Abraham, at the time of testing, offered Isaac back to God. By an act of faith, Joseph prophesied the exodus of Israel. By faith, Moses, when grown, refused the privileges of an Egyptian royal house. He chose the hard life of God's people. By an act of faith, Rahab the harlot welcomed the spies and escaped the destruction of Jericho. It goes through all of this and, and it summarizes in Hebrews 11:32 to 38. I could go on and on, but I've run out of time. We should point that scripture out for Stuart. There are so many more. Gideon, Barak, Samson, uh, Jephthah, David, Samuel, the prophets. Through acts of faith, they toppled kingdoms, made justice work, took the promise for themselves. They were protected from lions, fire, sword thrust, turned disadvantage to advantage, won battles, routed alien armies. Women received their loved ones back from the dead. There were those who, under torture, refused to give in and go free, preferring something better, resurrection. Others braved abuse and whips and, yes, chains and dungeons. We have stories of those who were stoned, sought in two, murdered in cold blood, stories of vagrants wandering the earth in animal skins, homeless, friendless, powerless. The world didn't deserve them, making their way the best they could in the cruel edges of the world. You know, Jesus' life is a study in faith. You want to know what faith is? Just read the Gospels. Particularly, as, as Stuart pointed out, in that period of time between the Last Supper and Jesus' crucifixion, in the garden, facing brutal death, all of his friends asleep. Hebrews notes that Jesus saw the world through faith in God the Father. In Hebrews chapter 12, keep your eyes on Jesus, who both began and finished this race we're in. Study how he did it because he never lost sight of where he was headed, that exhilarating finish in and with God. He could put up with anything along the way, cross, shame, whatever. And now he's there in the place of honor, right alongside God. Everything good that comes from God comes by grace through faith. It's the pathway through which God's goodness manifests in our lives. When we see the world through the lens of faith, we see God in all things. We know we are not alone. We are not afraid. Faith helps us to comprehend and make sense out of confusing circumstances. It helps us to see Christ even in the midst of crisis or in circumstances where we think he's absent. When we wear a faith lens, we believe that even though we don't see him, we know God is working for our good in every situation we face. Read Romans chapter 8. The Bible is full of accounts of men and women who saw the world through the lens of faith and were able to overcome circumstances. And you know, we see the same thing today. Think of the growth of the church in China where Christians are, are prisoned or tortured. We see it closer to home where people often risk their, their jobs or their professions or their military service to act in accordance with their faith. Faith is simply a far superior lens through which to see the world than is fear. 
It's not that we ignore what is as Christians. It's that we have a greater confidence in the one who holds our lives. It's not that we're immune to what's around us. It's that we have faith in what we know surrounds us, which is God's love. The lens of faith says, what the enemy meant for evil against me, God will turn around and use for my good. You can declare that God will use that very thing that comes against you to make you stronger. Amen. Amen. Now imagine the power of living life through this lens. None of us were meant to see life through a lens of fear and doubt. We were meant to see the world through the lens of faith. We were meant to know that there is a God, that God loves us, and that he will never leave us or forsake us. That's his promise, and we can count on that promise. And you know what? We were meant to be powerful. We were meant to have a faith so strong, mountains cannot stand against us. And Jesus makes this available to each of us. This is our inheritance. It's meant for each of us. All we need to do is reach out and take it. Pillar two, set your mind on the true, the noble, the just, the pure, and the virtuous. You know, because faith is such a powerful thing, we need to be very careful what it is that we bring our faith to. Faith of pride properly and in love is a powerful force for good. But faith misguided can be a negative force. When a person's focus is drawn to negative or destructive thoughts, when they have faith in bad outcomes, too often they'll live into those outcomes. That's the power of believing in something. And such is the reason we must guard our hearts and guard our minds. The world will constantly bombard you with negative words and images. The nightly news will report on every single plane crash, but they never once will report on the thousands of flights that occur every day that take off and land safely. Social media will tell you that you're not enough. You're not pretty enough. You're not thin enough. You're not tough enough. You're not fill in the blank. You know, and sometimes our churches do this too. Sometimes churches say, you're still a sinner. You're not righteous enough. You can't be a Christian if you fill in the blank with whatever the popular sin of the day is to condemn. They might say to you, you know, God may accept you just the way you are, but if you're going to attend church here, you better get yourself cleaned up. And that's unfortunate because God accepts you just the way you are and he doesn't walk away from you if you don't change. But the truth is, as you develop that relationship and you grow into maturity, change happens naturally because of your worldview. Scripture warns us about the possibility of these negative outcomes and tells us what to do about it. In Philippians uh, 4.8 it states, Finally, brethren, whatever things are true, whatever things are noble, whatever things are just, whatever things are pure, whatever things are lovely, whatever things are of good report, if there is any virtue and if there is anything praiseworthy, meditate on these things. When you focus your faith on these things, faith will act in the way that it was intended to empower you as one of God's saints to step into your inheritance and grow in relationship with Jesus Christ. When you focus on these things, you protect your heart from the things of this world that would seek to tear you down. 
You know, I was really tempted when I went through this to call this the uh, uh, Charlotte Sweeney pillar. You know, because Charlotte is, is you know, I, I, I know she's in here somewhere, I can't see her. Okay, there you go. Charlotte is the perfect example. Charlotte, you are a light to the world. And And when I read this scripture and I read the importance of faith in positivism and a positive outcome and what is noble and good and just, I think of Charlotte. You know, and we all have these role models that we can look to, that we can see the absolute power of a positive worldview. But you know, the, the, the worldview, this focus on the noble and the just and the virtuous, is also in part the basis of Christian morality. And that's part of our worldview. You know, the world gets morality wrong. The world thinks of morality in two separate buckets. Uh, the first bucket is, you know, morality is relative. It's whatever you feel like it being at the time. That's one bucket. The second bucket that the world puts morality in is a whole list of rules that you got to follow. And if you don't follow those rules, well, you're bad, you're wrong, you're condemned. Neither view of morality, neither of those two views of morality is correct. A Christian worldview recognizes that God is objective moral truth and that our actions come from our relationship to that objective moral truth, not by way of societal norms or from a list of rules. God's perfect. He's perfect in mercy. He's perfect in judgment. God is objective moral truth. Justice and virtue are not found in a list of rules or in societal norms. They're found in the personhood of God. He is justice, he is virtue. When we focus our faith on the true, the noble, the just, the pure, and the virtuous, we are focusing our faith on God, the source of objective morality, the source of what is pure, what is just, and what is virtuous. When our worldview is oriented in this fashion, as we mature in truth, so will our moral choices mature. When you focus on the just and the noble and the virtuous, your intention will naturally turn toward godly things and your behavior will follow. You'll associate with godly people. You'll begin to serve, you'll begin to give. You'll begin to act in a way that is consistent with an image of Christ. And this is not because of any rules, it's because of relationship. It's because God is the ultimate in pure and the ultimate in good. You know, Paul wrote Philippians when he was sitting in a prison cell, ultimately awaiting death. Yet he knew where his focus must be. He knew how to guard his heart. The same thing is available to all of us. We can guard our hearts. We can know what's true and pure and just, and we can focus on that. If we are intentional in our worldview, we can constantly correct and guard our focus to land on God. And when we do that, we guard our heart. Pillar three, we see ourselves and we see our others as God sees us. A Christian worldview requires that we adopt a God view of ourselves and of others, that we see ourselves and others as God sees us. God does not see the redeemed as sinners. He sees us as justified and righteous through the sacrifice of Jesus. 2 Corinthians 5.21 tells us, For he made him who knew no sin to be sin for us, that we might become the righteousness of God in him. Rather than seeing our sinfulness, God sees the righteousness of his son. 
He does not hold our sins against us, but having justified us, he invites us into active relationship with him. He sees us as people who have been redeemed, but so much more. We're chosen. We are counted as holy and blameless. You know, Ephesians uh, chapter 1 from uh, 3 to 14 has a whole list of the way God sees us. But I think the most telling description is as sons and daughters of God. Ephesians 1, 3 uh, through 6 tells us that before the foundation of the world, we were predestined to adoption as sons and daughters of God by way of Jesus' sacrifice. This simply echoes John chapter 1, 12 through 13. But as many as received him, to them he gave the right to become children of God to those who believed in his name, who were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. This is how God sees the saved. He sees us as his children, righteous and redeemed through Christ's sacrifice. You know, but what we sometimes fail to appreciate is that uh, God loves the unsaved just as much as he loves us. You know, the rabid atheist ranting against our faith is loved just as much as you and me. There's a guy named... Sam Harris, and I've read most of his stuff, he's uh, called one of the four horsemen of atheists. He's an atheist scholar and writer. It's humbling to me to consider that God loves Sam Harris just as much as God loves me. But that's an important point to note. Jesus actually taught on this issue with the parable of the lost coin, Luke 15, 8 through 10. Or what woman having 10 silver coins, if she loses one coin, does not light a lamp, sweep the house, and search carefully until she finds it. And when she has found it, she calls her friends and neighbors together, saying, Rejoice with me, for I have found the peace which I lost. Likewise, I say to you, there is joy in the presence of the angels of God over one sinner who repents. God doesn't want to condemn everybody, anybody. God wants to save everybody wants to save Sam Harris. He wants to save uh, every single person on earth. What happens when we see ourselves and we see others through this God's lens? You know, our culture in some ways devalues life. It treats it as cheap or transient or unimportant. We come to see ourselves as lacking value, so we lose hope. We fail to see the value in others, so we lose compassion. But when we intentionally choose to see others through the God's view lens, this has to change. You matter. Every single person in this house matters. Every person watching online matters. All of you have a purpose and a calling and a uniqueness. God, the almighty creator of the universe, wants a relationship with you. He wants your company daily. We need to be safe in that knowledge. But you know, it goes even further. The kid in the Walmart parking lot at night trying to score heroin or fentanyl, he matters. The young woman trapped in a sex trade, she matters. When you put on the God view lens, you cannot ignore the value of people and the hurt of this world. You can't ignore the hurt in your own heart. This is when your faith begins to bear fruit. When you begin to see the world in a way that recognizes your value and the value of others, God will open your eyes to your purpose and calling. 
He'll open your eyes to how you can serve. He'll open your eyes to the spiritual gifts that will manifest in your life. He'll show you how you can love. And that leads to the fourth pillar. Love yourself and others the way that God does. You know, uh, I'll probably get this quote wrong, but, you know, uh, rock teaches love at its most basic level is treating people in such a way that they know they matter and have value. That's a great definition of love. I hope I got it right. When you begin to see others with the same value that God sees them, you'll begin to love the way God intended you to love. To love is the most important of all the commandments. In Matthew 22, 36 to 40, Jesus was asked, which is the great commandment in the law? Jesus said to him, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind. This is the first and great commandment, and second is like it, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. On these two commandments hang all the law and the prophets. In fact, it was intended that we would recognize disciples of Jesus Christ by the way we love. In John 13, verse 35, by this we will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. To be a Christian, to be a disciple of Jesus Christ, we must forgive and show mercy to everyone and love them as if they've never done anything wrong. The way we love demonstrates who we are. The way we live is the first word we speak about the gospel and the transformational power of the cross. How we treat others is a living example of the love God demonstrated to us on the cross. To be a disciple of Christ means to love others unconditionally, forgiving the inexcusable of the past, showing mercy, and loving unconditionally with eyes focused on Jesus. How we treat others is an example of the love God demonstrated to us. You know, following the 2016 flood, communities and, and families were torn apart. And FEMA came in with forms. Samaritan's Purse and the Mennonite Disaster Relief, they came in with love. They stayed at this church for over a year, worshiping with us, fellowshipping with us, praying with us and praying for us. And that time they did more than rebuild houses. They rebuilt families. They rebuilt hearts. They loved. They never asked if a family or individual deserved their prayer or their compassion or their hard work. There was no faith test, no virtue test, no forms that you had to fill out to check off the right boxes. Instead, these men and women from many different places stepped out of their own lives to love others. There is perhaps no better illustration of a Christian worldview in action. You know, and every day within this body itself, we could find many similar examples. Some of them are seen and some of them are purposefully unseen. Love as a pillar of worldview is alive in this church body and in this community. And we need to, every day, intentionally use love as a lens through which we see the world. And finally, pillar five. 
be presently and radically called into a world starving for relationship with God. You know, there's an emptiness in this world that can only be satisfied by God in a relationship with Jesus Christ. And as much as the world wants to resist that, it's so. And the world will continue to hunger for Christ until every knee bows, excuse me, every knee bends and every head bows. God did not call us to dwell on the past or live in the past. He did not call us to be mired in old hurts or offenses. He did not call us to judge past behaviors of our own or of others. He called on us to keep no record of wrong. Nor did God call us solely for a future perfect heaven. He called us for a fallen world starving to know and to come into relationship with him. You know, God didn't call us to remain separate. He called us to go into the world and to go into the world boldly. Heaven is a gift and I don't discount it. But we're called to a ministry in this present world and we cannot allow the prospect of a future in heaven prevent us from living the gift that we have now. When we miss the now, either because we're mired in the past or too focused on the future, future heaven, we miss the beauty of the life that's here. You know, I really confess that this is something with which I struggle. You know, the work ethic that I grew up with at some point became an obsession. And that obsession became counterproductive and that counterproductivity caused me to miss out on important moments in life. That's a stronghold with which I struggle. That's why this, this message is so important to me. This causes me to realize I need to focus my attention, my worldview, on being present. There's a beauty in the present and in life around us that we can miss if we're not there. Think of the love and relationships we miss out on because we're either not there physically or we're not there because our minds and our attentions are elsewhere. Think of the moments we miss because we don't appreciate their fleeting nature. When we focus our faith solely on achieving heaven, we miss out on the abundance in life that Jesus brought us. John 10.10, I have come that they may have life and they may have it more abundantly. We can't miss out on the abundant life Jesus brought to us. We can't miss out on the opportunity to love in the here and now. A friend of mine once told me, don't wish it away. I'm not sure I understood what she said back then, but I certainly understand it now. Live, in, live into the present beauty with which we are blessed. And you know, part of this blessing is we're called to impact the world with the gospel, not separate ourselves from the world. Our command to spread the gospel and to minister to others requires that we engage with the world. Mark 16:15, and he said to them, go into all the world and preach the gospel to every creature. Matthew 2:14, and this gospel of the kingdom will be preached in all the world as a witness to all the nations, and then the end will come. Likewise, we're called to serve. Galatians 5:13, if you brethren have been called to liberty only do not use liberty as an opportunity for the flesh, but through love serve one another. Service requires engagement in the world. You can't serve in isolation. And we're called to make disciples. Matthew 28, 18 through 20. 
Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all things that I have commanded you, and lo, I am with you always, even to the edge of the age. Amen. Discipleship cannot happen in isolation. Discipleship is rooted in scripture and prayer and accountability and an exemplary lifestyle, but it requires relationships and connections and communities to work. It may seem a simple matter to say and act in a way that shows Christ and shows him to the world, but will anyone listen to you if you don't have the connections and the relationships? Creating personal connections with those you're discipling is essential. Looking, you know, at Jesus' life, look at the very personal connections that he made, the relatively small size of his inner circle. In order to disciple another person, you must have a relationship. It's only after you have that solid foundation can you have the mutual trust that it takes to have candid conversations as to where your faith stands. We simply cannot disciple if our worldview requires us to separate from the world, to isolate ourselves and wait for heaven. Our commission is different and our worldview must reflect that commission. Our commission is to engage now in this fallen world and be a light to others. And this requires that we be bold. You know, in 2 Timothy 1.7 it says, for God has not given us a spirit of fear but the power and love and of a sound mind. There are at least 30 references in the New Testament to the early disciples acting boldly. A Christian worldview calls you to be present, calls you to go into the world, and causes you to do so boldly with no fear. The parable of the lost son was an example that Jesus used to teach a Christian worldview. We all know the story, the younger of two sons asking his father for a share of an inheritance derived from his father's livelihood is where it begins. The father agreed to this, giving freely to the younger son. And while the older son stayed behind and toiled, the younger left for a far off land. Imagine the father watching him go. How did he feel? How did he act? He must have known his son's nature, his impulsivity. And when his son lost it all and was a Jewish kid feeding pigs, he came back to himself and he said, I need to go home. The servants in my father's house have more than this. And he came home and he was going to tell his father, man, I'm not worthy to be your son. Just let me be one of your servants. And his father sees him way off in the distance. And he hikes up his robes and he runs out and meets him and kisses his neck and lavishes on him and brings him back and says, give him the best robe. Let's fat, get the fatted calf. Let's slaughter. Let's have a party. This father exemplified every pillar of a Christian worldview. This father began with faith. He began with faith in letting his child go. You know, I imagine what it's going to be like when I let Maya go. I imagine, you know, you guys have two more that you got to let go. And it's tough, but this father had faith that God would care for his son. When his son returned, he saw the noble and virtuous aspects of a son returning, not the disastrous aspects of the son wasting his inheritance. 
He saw his son the way that God sees us, a wayward son returning. He loved his son the way that God loves us, without condition. And he engaged in the world. He threw a public party. Think of the condemnation he could have, he could have received. I mean, he got it from his older son, right? Why are you doing that? He, brought, he boldly proclaimed what love is about. This is the foundation of a Christian worldview. Your relationship with Jesus Christ really will change the way that you view yourself and you view the world. No one needs to live in fear. There's faith. No one needs to be consumed by negativity. We can focus on the truth. No one need discount or devalue their own lives or feel as though they don't matter. We're loved and we can love others. You don't need to dwell on the past or wish away the future. We can live in the here and now. If anyone hears this and doesn't have a relationship with Jesus Christ, come talk to us. Come pray with us. We're happy to answer any question you have and, and lead you to the kind of relationship that will change how you see the world. And as we leave here today and we go out into the world, let's be conscious of how we see things. Let's look at things through the proper filter of these five pillars and let's see how we change the world. If y'all pray with me. Holy Father, we thank you for the opportunity to come before you to hear your word and to begin to see the world the way that you see the world. We thank you, Father, for the opportunity to be loved by you and to love others. We thank you for the opportunity to act through faith knowing that you're with us and we need not be afraid. We thank you for being the perfect model of justice and of truth and of virtue. And we thank you for allowing us to see that model and to emulate it in our own lives and as we grow closer to you, that we become more virtuous. We thank you, Father, for the ability to go into the world boldly and powerfully and proclaim your word and to show love and to make a difference. You are the power, Lord. You are the glory. You are the way that this world changes. Let us do your will. Let the Holy Spirit speak to our hearts and our mind, and let us walk out of here and make a difference. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Well, thank you all. Um, I was remiss in not inviting the, the altar workers up, but if they'd like to come up, if anybody would like prayer, we'll hang around and uh, uh, have some prayer. Otherwise, go out, go in peace, enjoy the day. <laughs>